Luke chapter 15, I told my wife, I think today I'll get through um, the entire chapter. Not that I'll preach the entire chapter, but I'll finish the chapter because we're actually in Luke 15, verse 25. I'll set the context for you in a minute. I'm not looking forward to getting out of Luke 15. I've enjoyed being in Luke 15. I preached this like 12 years ago, but I've restudied it and rewrote the sermons and developed some things and have uh, learned a lot. Luke 15 is actually a unit. It's a lot of verses, 32 verses. Starts off in these words, then all the tax collectors, those would be Jewish uh, people, men most likely, that were hated by their fellow Jews because they worked for the hated Roman government, collected taxes, not only legitimate amounts, but more than they were supposed to. And the sinners, Matthew, by the way, is one of the disciples that was a tax collector, so a repentant tax collector. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear to him, that is Jesus, to hear him. Okay, so they drew near to him to hear him. So this assumes Jesus was going to say something, at least they wanted him to. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious leaders, complained, murmured, grumbled, whatever synonym you want to use, saying, this man, notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, why do you receive sinners and eat with them? Seems that the Pharisees and scribes are actually speaking to the other people there, tax collectors and sinners. By the way, we learn by the time you get to chapter 16, verse 1, the disciples were there as well. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, and then we have verses 4 through 7 is the first part of the parable. We have verses 8 through 10 is the second part of the parable. And then the largest section and the most well-known is verses 11 through 32. You've probably heard of this, the parable of the prodigal son or something like that. I noted last week, however, if you look at verse 11, because we'll be in this section, then he said, a certain man had two sons. So what's this section going to be about? A certain man and his two sons. So it's the parable of the certain man, a certain man and two sons, right? We learned something about the man. We learned something about both sons, both the younger and the older. Last week, we looked at the younger. I want to read all the way from verses 11 through 32 to set it in context. But just to remind you, 11 through 24, I called it scene one. A certain man and his younger son. And then scene two will be today, verses 25 through 32. A certain man and his older son. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all... There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Okay, a Jewish young guy working for a Gentile pig herder. It's not a good thing culturally. But when he came to himself... And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything... But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now notice he doesn't say, make me as one of your hired servants. So his mind got changed. His, his statement to his father got edited. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Lost and found. If you know anything about the first part of Luke 15, it's about lost sheep found by a good shepherd. Lost coin found by a good woman. What do you think Luke 15, 11 through 32 is about? At least 11 through 24, it's about lost son found by a good father. So Jesus is speaking in parabolic language. Now, that means he's using a lot of metaphors. You go, great, parabolic metaphor. What in the world do those things mean? So a metaphor is a word that's used to signify another thing. I am the door. You remember the John Gershner statement? That doesn't mean he has a handle sticking out of his ribs. It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. I am the good shepherd. Is he a literal first century shepherd with physical sheep? No. He's a tender of God's flock, though, of, of sinners. So he's using these metaphors that would signify something in the culture, but also he's using these metaphors that signify some spiritual truths that we need to mine out from the passage and then from the rest of of scripture. And we've seen this because I identified the uh, good shepherd of the first part of the parable as Jesus, the good man in the second part of the parable as Jesus, a good woman, excuse me, as a signifying Jesus. And I went out on a limb and said, I think the good father signifies Jesus as well. So what's Luke 15 all about in one sense? Jesus justifying his ministry as he's pushed back against by the Pharisees and scribes, their sniveling, whining, complaining, grumbling statement is, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And I've said this before. If that man did not receive sinners and eat with them, we might as well just end it. This is, this is the incarnate Son of God. This is the only hope for sinners. This is the Savior of sinners. Certain man had two sons. So we have a certain man that signifies something, two sons, older, younger, and older, that signify something as well. In verses 11 through 24, it dealt with the younger son. That's what we looked at last week. He requests of his, father's, of his father his share of his father's estate, and his father complies with his request, which is... An ironic twist, because in that culture, the father was said, get out of here. But instead, he lets him go. 
Both the request of the younger son and the response of the father were offensive to that culture. So if you're a Pharisee and scribe, you're going, what is this guy doing? The Pharisees and scribes would have been shocked that the son wanted his father's stuff and not his father, and that the father let him go. So I've said this before, at least in this parable, there's irony going on. There's another word, irony. What does that mean? Things end up going in a direction you wouldn't think at first. You'd think, oh, this younger son asked for his inheritance before his father gave it to him? This father's going to tee off. This is going to be a good slot. He's going to tread him. You watch this. The father didn't do that. He let him go. Once he cashes out, once the younger son cashes out, the younger son goes away from home and squanders everything. A famine comes upon the land of the far country, and the younger son becomes impoverished. He gets a job for a Gentile pig herder. He ends up all by himself, broke and hungry. And this, I have concluded, is a picture of man in sin that meant to illustrate to the Pharisees and scribes the types of people Jesus receives and eats with, sinners. Jesus came to save. The younger son resolves to go back to his father, confess his sin and unworthiness, and ask to be hired as a slave. He begins his way back to his father, but a strange twist once again occurs. The father sees his son from a distance and feels compassion for him. The son's prepared speech gets edited in the presence of his father, Seeing the father's compassion and full acceptance of him, the son does not request to be as one of his father's slaves. The father lavishes upon him symbols of full acceptance and reconciliation. The father then hosts a feast. We've seen this in the other parts of the parable, by the way. Most of scene one would have further angered the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus uses the Father as a symbol of what he is doing. Jesus lavishes grace, mercy, and compassion on people who are utterly unworthy of such, and he's happy to do it. So we're looking at scene two today. That's the review. This is verses 25 to 32. Notice, first of all, the older son is brought into the story. This is at the beginning of verse 25. The older son is brought into his story. So uh, his location. Now his older son was in the field. His older son was in the field. Note that he's not in the house. He's outside the sphere of celebration. We're not told what he was doing in the field, but we know this much. He was not in the house. He was not celebrating as it was meet in the old King James, it was meet that they should celebrate. It was right, it was appropriate that they should celebrate. The older brother, as I said last week, signifies the Pharisees and scribes, and probably unbelievers in general. Uh, they were religious leaders of the day. But what might the field signify? Have you ever wondered that? He's out in the field. What's the field? Does the field signify something? It could, right? This is a parable. He's using a string of metaphors, uh, a verbal sign, which signifies not the thing itself, the field, but something other than the field, signified by the word field. 
You know, what could it signify? Could it be similar to the far country of Luke 15, 13? Look at 15, 13. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, uh, 13, excuse me, and not many days after the younger gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. Remember that last week? What did I say that signified? Man out in the lost world. Could the field be similar to the far country of Luke 15, 13? I think so. Just as the far country signified that the younger son was in the state of sin and misery, lost in sin, so the field signifies the same for the older son. The far country signified the lost estate of the younger son. The field signifies the lost estate of the older son. Here's one of our friends from the 18th century, Gill. Now these are said to be in the field, these Pharisees and scribes. Now watch what he says. In the world, in a state of nature and unregeneracy, in the same condition he came into the world, taken up with the things of the world. And though he was in the Jewish church state, yet was in the field of the world, this elder son was in the field at work, working for life, to work in order to obtain righteousness, life and salvation, proceeds from wretched ignorance and is in an instance of the pride and vanity of human nature and is not only a vain and fruitless attempt, but a piece of wickedness, it being a denial of Christ as God's salvation now. While the younger son, the tax collectors and sinners were received and entertained in the house and kingdom of God, the older son, the scribes and Pharisees, were without in the field, laboring to obtain life by doing. Is he right? I think so. By the way, on the way here, I told my wife, I'd rather get the right doctrine from the wrong text than the wrong doctrine from the right text. I'm borrowing a title from a book, by the way. You know that I do this quite often, because as far as I know, I don't say heretical things. I say right doctrine, but sometimes from the wrong text. I'd rather do that than say wrong doctrine from the right text. So if you disagree with Gil there, that's fine. I don't, theologically, it's true what he said. Whether or not that signify, is signified by the field, that's where we, you know, we don't punch each other out. We could, I guess, but that wouldn't be good. That's where you go, hmm, yeah, maybe. I, I think he's right. Notice, second, this older son's approach to the house and his observation, last part of verse 25, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Notice he's still outside the house. He hears music and dancing. Apparently, the celebration was large enough to project sound far enough that the older son could hear from a distance. By the way, the fatted calf could most likely feed, some say, between 100 and 200 people. Could there have been that many people there? I don't know what was in Jesus' mind. I don't know all the cultural connections, but he's not there. He's outside, and he hears it. Notice his exchange with one of the servants. This is verses 26 and verse 27. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now, notice verse 26. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He asks, in effect, what 
in the world is going on in there. Something is way wrong. This has the scent of something really bad. Here's another good question. If the older brother signifies Pharisees and scribes, who is signified at this point by one of the servants? Who, who is this servant? Is this like a hired Gentile slave that works for pay? Or is this some other form of servant? You know, if the field, he's still outside. If he's out in the field, out in the world, he's a lost sinner out there. Um, what could this servant signify? Here's John Gill. I have a question mark next to this quote, just so you know. I'm wondering if he's right. Here's what he suggests. One of the ministers of the word, one of the disciples of Christ, as the scribes and Pharisees sometimes did, choosing rather to speak to one of the disciples than to Christ himself when they were offended. Could this signify the Pharisees being confronted about the truth claims of Jesus, not by Jesus himself, but by a disciple of Christ? It could, does it? I'm not sure. But notice verse 27. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Okay, so fa brother, father, younger brother, father, older brother, those are the three main characters here. The answer he get, gets is not encouraging to him at all, though it should be. This should be encouraging him, right? You mean my blood brother? They're celebrating over the foundness of my blood brother? Get out of my way. I'm going in there. This is great. His wayward brother has been found and his father is celebrating with others. What a terrible thing, right? Now, can you hear the older brother say to himself, you mean my father has received a sinner and is eating with him? That's my pro big problem with this whole thing. That's what his father was doing. He found a sinner and he was eating with him. This, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but he has been found. Who's the finder? Jesus. Who was the found one? Sinners. Undone in their unrighteousness. This is what the Pharisees had a problem with, this celebration. You mean my father has received a sinner and is eating with him? Yes. I don't like that. I don't like salvation by sovereign distinguishing grace. I want salvation by works. Notice his response to the servant's answer, verse 28a, but he was angry and would not go in. Okay, if you're following, tracking, you're going, of course he's not happy. Of course he's gonna be angry and not go in. This is not good. Instead of rejoicing, that his brother had been found, he becomes angry. Just the antithesis, the opposite of what he ought to have done. Here's the uh, 19th century Anglican J.C. Ryle at this point. Let those who think the elder son was a good man notice this expression. It is just the counterpart of the murmuring of the scribes and Pharisees at the beginning of the chapter. Okay, the murmuring at the beginning shows up again right here. Why did he become angry? The older brother 
obviously represents the Pharisees and scribes. They were not happy with Jesus' method of instruction and social interaction. The celebration implies not only that the younger son had been found, but that he was now reconciled with the father. And this is going against all the cultural hot buttons of the day. The father would not have called for a celebration with an estranged son. So therefore, the implication is the son is no longer estranged. The older son was angry because he thought the younger brother needed to get a job and work his way back into the affections and graces of the father. Okay? Remember that term phrase yes, last week, legal spirit? The younger son had a legal spirit when he was in the far country when he said, make me as one of your hired servants. But then when the father comes running after him, he repeats his words but leaves that one out. He no longer had a legal spirit. Guess who has a legal spirit now? You know what a legal spirit means. Do to obtain. You want forgiveness of sins? Jump through these hoops and maybe if you're leaping style gets a 10 out of 10 by the judges, you'll actually obtain the gift that God offers you through your works of the law. These were were lawmen here. They thought the law was given so that I might follow it, do it, and obtain life. Do this and live, as you read in the Old Testament. Here's what one man says. Reconciliation and restoration without penalty paid by the offender is too much for him to understand and accept. For certain types of people, grace is not only amazing, it is infuriating. Because you know what grace says? God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, that's what we want to say grace is. Grace says it's all of him or... It's all of me. Actually, grace doesn't say that. Grace implies that. Grace says, he's done it all. I just receive, you know, with a soiled hand of faith, the benefits that are promised to me in the gospel offer. I don't perform. And then if I perform enough, God says, I knew you could do it. That spark of goodness in you, I just had to flicker it just a little, and then you, you took the baton the rest of the way. I choose winners. You're a winner. Uh, I've said this before. We're all losers, and God chooses only losers. That way he gets all the glory. That's true, you know, sovereign grace there. So here we have... Reconciliation and restoration, but the guy thought there's no penalty paid there. He's got to pay the penalty. Well, if we try to work through the theology here, if this is this certain man is a symbol for the incarnate son, we could say that there was penalty paid. If he does represent the incarnate son, Jesus suffered and died, right? That's where reconciliation comes. Now, that's not explicitly in the text, but if we allow our Bible lenses to get a little wider than just the text, we can say, well, there, 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 there was penalty paid, but not by the offender. The offended 
pays the penalty for the offender. That's the, that's the weird thing of the gospel, the wonderful thing of the gospel. The offending God takes our nature in order to take the offender's guilt and wipe it away. You say, well, that sounds too good to be true. Um, if that's not true, I'm going to go eat the Mexican food and get first in line. Note these words, and would not go in. This is not a happy camper. He would not go into his father's house. This is guilt. Nor to the feast, nor into the kingdom of heaven. He's right. The scribes and Pharisees shut it up to themselves and others, would neither go in themselves nor suffer or allow others. They did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah, nor did they receive but reject him. Gil's right, and I think that's in the heart of this older brother. Now the father responds. The father responds in verse 28b and uh, c into the rest of uh, verse 28. Here's the response. He comes out of the home. Therefore, his father came out and pled with him. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means he came out and pled with him. <laughs> Here's what John Gill says. He came out not in a way of wrath and judgment, but in the ministry of the word. See what he's doing there? He's saying, this is a parable. These are metaphors. These are verbal signs signifying, yes, first century cultural realities, but there's some spiritual things that are happening here. It says, he came out not in a way of wrath and judgment, but in the ministry of the word. God frequently went forth to them by his prophets and at last by his son, which is all true, what Gill says there. The culture required the older son to enter the home and greet the guests. Not doing this, was disrespectful to the guests and would bring shame upon the father. But notice, the father goes out to the older son. Now, if we're watching that and we're in our first century sandals or whatever they were, we're going, what is this father doing? He's doing it again. He chased after the prodigal son and now he's, he's going out to this one? Just as the father's going out to the younger son would have been against the culture of the day, so was this. So we have more irony enters the story at this point. What happens is not what was expected by the cultural norms of that day. The father goes out to the stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked older brother. And it says in the rest of verse 28, and pleaded with him. He probably pled with him to change his mind about the situation and come in. Something like this, maybe. Here you are in the field, away from the celebration. I have called for my son who was lost. I found him. We have reconciled. There is peace between us. It is right for me to call others and celebrate. And yet, you refuse to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Something like that. The Pharisees and scribes would have expected the father to give the older son an earful and rebuke him. Instead, he pleaded with him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, how often I would have 
gathered you like a hen gathers. You know the rest of it. He pleaded with him, Ryle says. The kindness of the father's character appears once more in this expression. He might have rebuked his ill-natured son, but he only entreats him. Uh, I didn't read Spurgeon on this. I bet you he has sermons on this. But methinks I could hear Mr. Spurgeon saying, look at the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. He pled with a lot of people, didn't he? Now, the older son's response to the father is found in verses 29 and 30. Note its abruptness. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, some of your versions might say, Look. Now watch this. Hey, Dad, look. Listen to me. Let me teach you something. That, that's what's going on here. That just doesn't sound good, especially with my dad. I would never say to my father, Hey, Dad, listen to me. Sit down. I'm going to teach you something. Some of you know my father. He'd say, you need to teach from a distance because you're out of here, boy, and don't get any food on the way out. So Lowe's like saying, look, you don't get it. Let me teach you a thing or two because this is not a good scene here. So he answered and said to his father, Lowe, it's not a respectful way to address one's father. The older son is boiling. He is outraged. This outrage is the first century in the first century resulted in the death of the Lord of glory. He's outraged at the Father. If the Father is a symbol of the incarnate Son, then we can say this is just the tip of the iceberg because their outrage, they crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8. This is this is crucifixion in a bud, in the bud. This outrage at the incarnate Son of God in his, uh, in his teaching about his own person and his work and the way he went about his earthly ministry resulted in what? They just didn't, like, disagree with Jesus. They killed him, okay? Notice the content of his response. Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I never, now watch this, let me read it again. Lo, these many years, I have been serving you. I never transgress your commandment at any time. And yet, you never give me a young goat. You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my, my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, see what he's doing there? He doesn't say, and as soon as my brother, he says, soon as this, this man receives sinners and eats with them, as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now note five things, I hope. First of all, note, he argues from his years of service. This is verse 29a. These many years I have been serving you. Okay, this is an argument, okay? He's going toe-to-toe with his father. Actually, it's the Pharisees and scribes, the implications of their doctrine worked out toe-to-toe with the incarnate Son of God, if you want to be really tight with the, 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 the parable here. He argues from his years of service. These many years I have been serving you. Here's what Gil says. For though he was called a son, by the way, you ever wondered that? Why is this older son called a son here? 
Hold on. He says, though he was called a son, yet differed little from a servant. He was of a servile disposition and under a spirit of bondage. He served his father, not in the gospel, but in the law, in the letter of it, and not in the newness of the spirit, externally and not internally, from fear and not from love, with mercenary views that is expecting payback for a job accomplished and not freely, with trust in and dependence on his service, seeking justification and eternal life by it, and not with a view to the glory of God. And this he had done many years. This guy is utterly self-centered, self-righteous, and deceived. These many years I have been serving you. Second, he argues from his opinion concerning his obedience to his father's commands. Here's his opinion. Here's his doctrine, his teaching, his thinking about his own obedience to his father's commands. I never transgressed your command at any time. So if we're sitting there, we're going, dude, stop. Your rhetorical overkill is killing me and you. Never transgressed, define never. Never sinned. Uh, at any time, look those words up in the dictionary. Do you realize what you're saying? Here's what Gil says which, though true of the elect angels, never transgressed at any time, can never be said of any of the sons of men, and which shews, I love that word, old word for shows, which shows that he had never been under a work of the Spirit of God who convinces of sin and had never been himself in a true light in the glass of that law, never seen himself in a true light in the glass of that law. He pretended to serve God in that he was a stranger to the plague of his own heart. What a terrible position to be in. A stranger to the plague of his own heart and was a self-deceiver and the truth of grace was not in him. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. The damning, this damning doctrine was confronted later in the New Testament. Book of Romans, book of Galatians, and elsewhere. Listen, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It is impossible for any of the sons of men since the fall into sin to go before the presence of God and say, I never transgressed your command at any time. Liar, you just transgressed one of his commands. Matter of fact, who is not happy here? The older son. What should he be happy? Why? Because the father found the dead son who is alive again found the lost one who is home again, and he's celebrating. He's disobeying the father right there. But he says, I never transgress your commandment at any time. Uh, remember, I've said this before. We sin way more than we consciously realize, and God is way better and way more merciful than we'll ever exhaust. He argues that these things, thirdly, he argues that these things earned him at least a goat, and celebration with his friends. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. I'm accentu accentuating the, the uh, first person singular. 
Note me, I, my. Who do you think this guy's all about? Me, I, my. Uh, me, myself, and I. I used to call that the, the inter, inside of me, Trinitarian disaster of self of self-awareness. What am I all about? Me, myself, and I. That's not the solution to our problems. That's our problem. Gill says his meaning seems to be that he had never received any favor in proportion to the service he had done, and so charges his father with ingratitude. (laughs) I've done all this for you for all these years, and you haven't even given me a goat. You are an ungrateful father. That, that's what we're dealing with here. You know. How, how about Romans 11.35? Or who was first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? Who has first given to him, capital H, and it shall be repaid to him, lowercase h? What creature can say, I have given this to God. God had something to gain by virtue of me doing something for him. And so God owes me in light of it. Who made your mouth? Everything you have, you've received. We don't as creatures get, go, I, I, I need to get repaid for this, God. By the way, don't ever say that to God. Because some are going to get repaid for what they've done. But it never turns out good. Notice fourth, he won't even own him as his brother, verse 30 at the beginning. But as soon as this son of yours came, this man, I think I made a point of this earlier, this man received sinners. This son of yours. Not my brother. There's no affection here at all, either for the father or for the brother. It's all self-centered, egotistical, narcissistic, damning doctrines coming to fruition in this story. And then he argues against his father being compassionate toward his younger brother due to his wayward life. Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. But notice... The older son does not realize that his present attitude toward his younger brother and especially toward his father is exposing his real problem. I mean, you you wish you could say, all right, we're we're going to take a video of this and then you're going to stop talking and we're going to watch this. I'm going to show you line by line what your heart's all about. Okay. He is a proud, self-righteous older brother. He cannot enter into his father's joy. He tries to force his father's hand based on his actions, his deeds, his so-called righteousness, and the fact that he is not like his younger brother. In other words, he does not think he is in need of repentance. There's a big problem there. Remember, reading Luke 15, there's, in all three of them, Illustrations of both repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. Here's what Matthew Henry says about this statement. Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. Matthew Henry says this. I am apt to think that this elder brother said more than was true. Said a lie, in other words. When he gloried that he had never transgressed his father's commands, for then I believe he would not have been so obstinate as now he was to his father's entreaties. This guy's a liar. 
Another man says the younger son was a rebel and knew it. Is that you? The older, the older, the older brother is a rebel and does not know it, or at least does not consciously acknowledge it to the depth that he ought to. He might say something like, well, nobody's perfect. You don't have friends that say that. Nobody's perfect. Do you realize what that means? Nobody's perfect, but what does God require of us? Perfect moral conformity to, a, to his law. Nobody's perfect's not good news. It's bad news. Uh, by the way, there was one among us who was perfect. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This guy is a liar. This guy is self-deceived. He is consumed with envy, pride, bitterness, sarcasm, anger, resentment, self-centeredness, hate, stinginess, self-satisfaction, and self-deception. Yet he appears to see his actions as a righteous search for honor. And because his father doesn't respond to his arguments about his righteous anger, about his so-called good works, he gets even more angry. It's like, you want to shake him. The father is, the, is a sign in the story signifying the incarnate son of God. Among the Jews in the first century, he, he, he pled with them to come. He warned them about judgment, but he offered himself as their only hope, the fulfillment of all the hopes of the prophets and Moses in the Old Testament. The Old Testament terminates on him. It points to him, and he, he kept teaching them that, that over and over and over again. But they got madder at him and got so angry with him, and they were so self-righteous and blind, they killed the Lord of glory. And mysteriously, in God's sovereign providence and predetermined uh, plan, God determined the death through the secondary creaturely agency of these first century Jews and some, and some Gentiles. He purposed it for what? For us and our salvation. Jesus' sufferings were, by the way, obedient sufferings. He had things come upon him, things happen to him from the outside. He never sinned. And yet they crucified the Lord of glory. He never sinned. Does that help us? Yes. We always sin. God requires of us to never sin. If we're going to be in his safe presence, we must somehow, some way, be in the status of uh, being a never sinning sinner. How can we be a never sinning sinner? We can be if somebody is appointed as our head for us and the virtue of his work is somehow credited to our account. That's what has happened. And this parable is in various ways trying to teach us those kinds of things. Well, the father has a closing statement in verses 31 and 32, which will wait for second service. What's Luke 15 about Jesus? What's the gospel of Luke about Jesus? What's the New Testament about Jesus? What's the Old Testament about 
Jesus, what is the Bible, the written word of God? What is its goal in telos? What is it seeking to do? Bring sinners back to God. What is the mechanism through which it does that? The incarnation, sufferings, and glory of the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the branch of David, great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now the new temple and building the temple all over the world. Come to him. Have your sins forgiven. Get a title to glory. Get the proper motivation for living the Christian life. Not a sense of achieving to gain, but obeying out of love. Guilt, grace, and if we have grace, gratitude should be the motivation of our living. Last night I was over at the St. Prairie's talking about preaching sermons that cause people to squirm. I used to do that, and about 1994 or so, I don't know who I started reading, I think it was Thomas Boston, and I started going, thinking to myself, I preach squirming sermons. And so I tried to slowly change, and, and uh, one of the church members came up to me and said, Pastor, I've noticed you're not preaching those squirming sermons where you could hear a pin drop. Uh, and nobody's feeling like comfortable while you're saying what you're saying. You're not doing that as much. And I said, no, I, I think in the long run, that's not the proper motivation. And this happened to be a woman. She said, well, I like the squirming sermons. They, they motivate me, you know. Uh, and uh, so last night I was saying, I try not to do that. Uh, can I make you squirm? Of course. How's your prayer life, brother? See? He's not squirming. He's just acknowledging. He just goes like, who in here wants to say my prayer life? I mean, I'd put it up to Paul's. Paul, me, prayer life, you know. How's your, how's your intermental thoughts going? Especially men. Can I make men squirm? It's so easy. The harder thing is to preach Jesus as a willing Savior every single week from every single text. I hope I have done that this morning. May the Lord bless his word. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. There is more to it than we'll ever exhaust. Um, but we pray that anything and everything that was said that is in line with Holy Scripture, you would use it for your glory in our souls. And anything that was said that is not accurate, not a faithful expression of the intent of the written word of God, you blow it out of our memories. Uh, help us now to sing in gratefulness and thankfulness for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.